0: plushcare.com slash weight loss you know there's this old proverbial phrase and we've all heard it before in fact it's become a bit of a meme nowadays but here goes when life gives you lemons you make bloody lemonade it's the perfect way to explain resilience mental toughness and even when things are really shit you can still make good out of a bad situation, and my guest today is someone who will help you define and build your own resilience and mental toughness. Dr. Susie Green is a CEO and founder of the Positivity Institute, which is dedicated to improving well-being in the workplace. In her early career, she worked for many years with people who were very psychiatrically unwell. Before taking the science and psychology of well-being out to the public through the Positivity Institute, she's helped many businesses and employers develop the muscle that is our mental well-being. So during my chat with Dr. Susie Green, you're going to hear about what they call the gold mean. What is it? How to achieve it? How to achieve resilience and mental toughness. Particularly now, it's so important we develop the skills to push back on things that aren't helpful to our well-being, and then how can your business create a positive work culture for your employees and everyone around you? Now, my chat with Susie is just skimming the surface. The same science and psychology that she'll be sharing in today's podcast can be found in her Masterclass on Well-Being. It's all delivered in a practical manner to not only increase the levels of well-being, but decrease levels of mental illness in your workplace. Be sure to jump on mentor.com.au to check out Susie's masterclass. It will really help elevate your mental well-being and everything else you do as a proprietor, entrepreneur, or whatever it is you do. I'll pop the link into the show notes. So let's get into it. Susie Green, welcome to the mentor again.
1: <laughs> Lovely to be here, Mark.
0: You look so fresh and uh, on today. Like you, lo- you look like you're really beaming. What have you been doing? Like, how are you doing this?
1: <laughs> I've got gr- good light. I've got good lighting, Mark. But um, I think as the CEO of the Positivity Institute, I have to walk the talk. But that's not to say I don't have uh, days where I feel challenged and you know struggling a bit too. So I think that's a really important message I want to get across today as well.
0: Okay. So let's talk about it for a second. I mean, Positivity Institute, um, where did that come from?
1: Well, I started my professional career as a psychologist and as a clinical psychologist. So I was really thrown in the deep end working with people that were very psychiatrically unwell actually down in the Illawarra and I worked out pretty quickly two things one that it wasn't for me to do that sort of work all day every day and two that my children were in primary school and I started to think why aren't my children learning these basic life skills really and I've been on this incredible journey I do believe it's what uh, Carl Jung who was a famous psychiatrist spoke of as synchronicity so I feel like I've been blessed I've been in the right place at the right time and I've really been in this proactive space now and I ended up I guess doing a well first study on evidence-based coaching so using coaching approaches which many of your listeners will be familiar with not just to help people achieve their goals but actually to improve their mental health and their well-being so for the last you know 15, 20 years, that's the space I've been in. And and luckily the field of positive psychology, which is defined as the science of optimal human functioning, or very simply us at our best, is a field that I'm absolutely passionate about and I love and I read it for fun and I apply it to my own life and my own business.
0: It's pretty bloody difficult to become a psychologist, a clinical psychologist. It's it's not like you just go to university, do a psychology degree. Um, There's a whole lot of other things you have to do as well. Um, In fact, it's really hard, um, uh, quite quite hard. So we just quickly take us through what is the process of becoming a psychologist? I mean, you're obviously an experienced psychologist as well in a clinical sense. but what does it take to become a a registered clinical psychologist?
1: Yes, it is a long journey, and particularly for somebody like me, I left school at sixteen and I'm um, nobody in my family had gone to university, and so it wasn't even on my radar, and it wasn't until I was about twenty five that my partner at the time suggested that why don't you you know go to university and I always thought oh I'm not a university person which a lot of people I think um, used to think I think that's changing but I managed to sit uh, in those days you could just sit a, a, an exam and I got in much to my surprise and it took me about eight years and two children to finish my sort of um, undergrad and then So that's a three year degree. Then you do an honours or you can do a graduate certificate, which is a fourth year. And then there's an additional two years either as a master's, so I did clinical master's, but there are organisational master's, health master's, sports psych master's, uh, and then I went on and did an additional year uh, to do the doctorate in clinical psychology. So it it was most of my adult life and for most of my children's lives I was studying, <laughs> you know, so it's been a long haul, but I can tell you it's the best investment I ever made and I'm so grateful for the opportunities that I've had.
0: Yeah, and, uh, and a clinical psychologist is someone who, as the word says, operates maybe in a clinic or a place where, you know, an individual might go and visit you for a consultation and you take them through a process. You, first off, you diagnose them and then you give them, um, let's call it techniques or whatever, to manage their life, in your case, as you say, optimally or, or the, live the best lives we can. Under our constraints, because we all got constraints,
1: Absolutely and everybody's got something generally we find from the past and I had a supervisor that used to tell us if you're going to bury something make sure it's dead or it'll come back to haunt you and uh, so that's why I'm really also whilst I play in the proactive space I'm really passionate about encouraging people to seek therapy and I usually say we're not like New York yet where people brag about their therapists and I really think we need to be. Yeah
0: yeah, I get it and I think that's I, to me, I think it's particularly these days. I mean, like, it's become – I've become acutely aware of um, these issues, like, in the, more so in this round of COVID uh, than, say, the last round of COVID. I mean, I have had as a guest on – I mean, it's, this is going to an extreme, but I have had a guest on as, on, on our podcast with, uh, with John Brogdon, who's from Lifeline, and John, John's a mate of mine. And, like, uh, I mean, I've been talking to him, and, like, it's, like, mind-boggling the amount of people who are feeling – dreadfully and i use the word dread uh dreadfully affected by um what's going on um lack of certainty worry scare tactics whatever it is um uh, dreadfully at the moment um and psychology and positive psychology or you know the positivity is become a really important thing and well-being you know our particular well-being and the well-being of our community and the world, public health well-being just generally speaking which we don't hear much about we don't hear our politicians talk about our our wellbeing they talk about our public health issue like are we all vaccinated and we're not having a number of cases but maybe you just talk us around this this concept of well-being and and our, our overall well-being
1: yes yeah, so when you you're so right everything you said there when we talk about mental health and i used to i guess find that really interesting when i came into the field because As a beginning clinical psychologist, we used to have an institute of mental health down at the University of Wollongong and I used to think mental health, it's really mental illness. So people before when we were talking about mental health were primarily talking about mental illness and the reduction, you know, the identification treatment and reduction of mental illness. But now what we're finding is that we're talking that mental health encompasses reduction of mental illness and the promotion of well-being, psychological well-being, and that's really the space that I've been playing more so in. I did years and years of treatment over 500 individual clients, but I'm really passionate about learning these skills proactively in our schools, in our workplaces, and in our communities.
0: A really important thing, I mean, is and I've never thought about this before, but you talked about um, mental illness as opposed to um, mental well-being. Um, they're, they're two different things. And uh, someone may have a mental illness. It could be um, genetic. It could be whatever. It could could have been from a trauma or something. But there's also this concept of actually your mental well-being, improving or optimizing your mental well-being. Because it might mean we need to work on our mental well-being as opposed to saying, oh, I've got a mental health problem. You know, It might not be a problem. It might be just something we need to work on to get better at feeling better.
1: Absolutely. And and the, I guess the other part of wellbeing enhancement is there's a really strong business case in terms of performance and what we're seeing and what many small business owners would be aware of that unfortunately is we see people working very hard they're they're very passionate about their work they're highly engaged but often to the detriment of their of their well-being where so what we're trying to do is to show that you can have well-being and performance together so that um, well-being supports performance and performance should ideally support well-being
0: there's this thing called PERMA positive emotions engagement relationships meaning and accomplishment. But what you want to take me through that, what does that mean?
1: Yeah. So it's a model that was developed by Professor Martin Seligman, who really formally launched the field of positive psychology back in 1998, when he was the president of the American Psychological Association. And he recognized that, again, we need to be much more proactive and that as psychologists, we'd been focusing on what's wrong with people rather than what's right. So this field has been going for 20 nearly 22 years now, and this model he published in a book called Flourish. Uh, if anyone's interested in purchasing it, and so he he identified that there were these, I guess, five. Um, pillars if you like of a flourishing individual so we use the f word a lot mark (laughs) not the f word you might know but uh, we call it flourishing the f word and so someone that's flourishing is experiencing high levels of well-being and low levels of mental illness and high levels of engagement as as well and so he found uh from across significant amounts of research over time that people that are flourishing uh, experience more positive emotions than negative, but that's a really important point because we're not saying it's about being happy all day, every day, and they will lock you up, I usually say, if you do walk around with that big yellow happy smiley face. So, But they generally, someone that's flourishing is experiencing more joy, more gratitude, more awe, more elevation, and there's 10 different positive emotions that the research has found. Um, They have high levels of engagement. So they're in what's described as psychological state of flow. And I'm sure a lot of your guests have spoken about that or sports uh, athletes talk about being in the zone when you're totally absorbed in an activity. And this is what happens to be in in my presentations and you lose track of time. So that's uh, when you're completely engaged. You're also using your strengths is what the research shows when you're highly engaged. You have a high degree of positive relationships. So not necessarily quantity, but you have what's called high quality connections. So you have very strong uh, bonds with with people. And again, may not be many, um, but those positive relationships really support you particularly when the going is tough Uh, then we have meaning uh, which is an area that's gaining a lot of popularity particularly in workplaces particularly with the younger generation and again a lot of your guests would have spoken about this they don't just want jobs they want to have um, you know a calling or they want to make a difference in the world so meaning is really important it's one of the most important factors on our well-being and the, the final one is a for accomplishment so we all need to feel good at something not every Thing, but we need to feel like we're achieving and we're accomplishing things over time. And so those five pillars, uh, people that are flourishing tend to report high levels across those five pillars.
0: So they're the five pillars to flourish. And uh, I actually find it quite uh, fascinating, um, to be frank with you, i using an F word, but <laughs> um, my perception of psychologists is always about fixing a problem as opposed to enhancing a skill. That I'm already have. Um, in other words, making me better.
1: Yes, I guess in a, in a nutshell, it is. But it's not. We're certainly not sending the message, as I said before that it's about being happy or positive all the time, because that's actually detrimental to our mental health and well-being. And there's a really strong movement in this. And in fact, there's a backlash that's being referred to as toxic positivity. And I guess my concern is that we don't want the pendulum to swing too far because there's there's real benefit in cultivating positivity, which is optimism, hopeful thinking, feeling joy. There's a, a business case and a scientific case for that. But we don't want it to get to the point where we're f- we're preventing ourselves from feeling like you know the the heartbreak that I what w- watching the news the other night with the planes leaving Afghanistan you know so it's not as if we're tr- we're trying to prevent ourselves from feeling normal human emotions like fear or anger or frustration their emotions are information and we we need to be able to feel them Um, Because otherwise, if we repress them, they will find their way out, whether that's through depression, anxiety, or some sort of physical manifestation, we know as well.
0: When you say, if we repress those emotions, not that I want a consultation, but let's just play one. My biggest uh, criticism of myself, and probably if people were prepared to tell me that make the criticism of me, is that I say what I think, both good and bad. I, don't, I never hold back. I just say it. I just, I don't know why I just say it, just blurt it out. Um, maybe because I'm not sensitive enough or what, I don't know what the reason i but anyway, whatever. What I've learned, maybe over the years, is that um, I shouldn't do that because sometimes I can offend somebody and uh, saying that I think they've done something that wasn't well thought through. I might say, and I might use the wrong language. Um, not so much these days, but certainly in the past, I might say, well, that was just dumb. That was just stupid. And and I don't mean to be hurt, but it just comes out of my mouth, okay? So there's no repression of my my thoughts or my feelings whatsoever. But now these days when I find when I don't say that because I'm worried about how I might come across to somebody and I don't want to cause them pain because ultimately you know, that affects me because the, their pain ends up becoming my pain, I can tell you one way or the other, I'm um, in running a business I'm talking about. I repress it but then I get the shits because I haven't said what I think and uh, it somehow builds up in me and I can get cranky the next day. Like I can actually be, I can wake up cranky is that what you're talking about like is that repressing my feelings
1: in a sense i guess you've got the awareness you've you've described i guess a high level of self-awareness to recognize that that's no longer who you want to be or how you want to behave so you've managed to restrain yourself and i would suggest mindfully think either not say anything at all or perhaps you have you are Uh, learning different ways of putting that forward because it is a skill in how we give feedback to people and in fact out of all the years I've run workshops the most common request is how to give feedback to people how do I actually say something knowing that it's coming from a place of good intentions and with heart because feedback as you know is crucial for our growth and development but it's how we deliver the message so I'd say I guess, yeah, you, you're at a point where you recognise you want to be able to make a positive impact but being able to find a way of saying it because you definitely still want to be able to say it would be my suggestion. Is
0: it fair to say, Susie, that some people can get away with it and some people can't? Like people, some people say to me, I don't know whether it's a defensive mechanism, but they say, that's one thing we love about you, Mark, um, you always say what you think.
1: I don't know if that's entirely true I think it depends on on the relationship that you have with that person so if you have invested in that and it is a high quality connection and that person knows that your uh, intention is positive and they've got to know you over a period of time they might very well appreciate that and in fact I have a friend like you whose honesty is her top strength feedback is another one of her strengths and she's one of my only friends that will say the things that my other friends don't. And I actually really appreciate that because I know it's as harsh as it can be sometimes to hear it. I really appreciate it. So, um, strengths are a really important part of the approach that we take in positive psychology, but we talk about finding the golden mean of strengths. So that is knowing when to wind a strength up and knowing when to wind it down. And that's often very contextual. So depending on the situation that you're in and also depending on the person that's in front of you. So again, if it's someone that you have invested, you've got a really strong bond with them, they, as I said, probably appreciate it. But if it's a new relationship, you're not quite sure how that person's going to respond, you're still really in the rapport building stage, then you'd probably want to just, you know, monitor that honesty Dole and use-down a bit. Yeah, and use your social intelligence um, around when you'd use it and when, you know, and build work towards it. Because I honestly think it's actually a great strength mark. And we need people to give more feedback um, for people's growth and development.
0: Can it go the other way, Susie? Too like in other words, uh we're not honest. And we create, and there's this words going around a lot now, but snowflakes, Um, you know, you, you're not honest because the new thinking is, oh, well, you know, I've got to be careful what I say and, you know, blah, blah, and be very consultative and, you know, and everything's a possibility and there's a ribbon for everybody, you know, from first place to 50th place. And, uh, and then all of a sudden what you do is you create snowflakes or people who, be, all you're doing is enhancing the sensitivity or sensibility of that individual or those individuals. Or that, or that cohort, and um, and really creating a, a real problem for yourself and/or your business. I'm talking about in business now. Um, is is that an issue?
1: I think it is because as much as I'm talking about strengths-based approaches in businesses, can be and the research supports is highly success successful, particularly in a culture like Australia where we, you know, haven't been encouraged to talk about our strengths and most people find it difficult. It is changing, um. Uh, but but you know as humans we have this innate desire for growth and development. Um, some of the early humanistic psychologists like Abraham Maslow spoke about self-actualization. Carl Rogers spoke about the fully functioning individual. So we all have this desire for growth and development, and part of that is recognizing what our strengths are. So that's a really important part but we also want to be aware of our areas for development and it's not as if as you would know it when you get to um you know a certain age it's not as if you've got it and that's it and you're not growing any longer so we need to constantly seek feedback about who we are and how we're turning up in the world
0: and you mentioned something and you called it the golden mean m-e-a-n aristotle had a thing called the golden mean which was the um when he talked about virtues he said there was a gold mean for every virtue. Maybe you could explain what you mean, what, what what your industry means by the golden mean.
1: Absolutely, and it is drawing very much on, I guess, Aristotle um, and f- philosophy. Uh, so the strengths that I've just spoken about, particularly as char- what are called character strengths, and there is a free assessment that uh, people listening can do, the IA Institute, and you can do a free assessment that I think over – I don't know. Fifteen million people have done it worldwide now. We use it extensively in uh, work in schools and in workplaces as well. Um, But it, when Marty Seligman first launched the field of positive psychology, he looked across history, through across cultures, across time, uh, philosophy, and they came up with six common virtues. And then under those virtues sit the 24 character strengths so character strengths like honesty bravery leadership kindness forgiveness for example and so there's been a lot of discussion in recent years around this golden mean that exactly as you said for example bravery you there can be an underuse or an overuse and uh you know I know for myself, bravery was, was not one of my strengths a, a number of years ago, particularly having a family history of anxiety. So I've had to work really hard at developing that strength of bravery over time.
0: That's interesting because I, I, for myself, I would say I was on the, I, when I was young, I was on the other end. I was more like the reckless end. So um, I was a, was a daredevil. So my bravery was not really bravery. It was not really courage as such. It was more like I would do anything. You know, if someone, especially if I was drinking, I mean, which one of reasons I don't drink very much anymore. But uh, if I was drinking, if someone said to me, "Well, let's climb up that building," um, I would do it, and I did do it on a number of occasions because I was more on the reckless side. Where a lot of people thought they would say, "Oh, well, he's a mad bastard," or, you know, going, "I'm getting this is a different era of people." You know? yeah. But but people would say to me, "Oh, Boris, a mad bastard. He'd do anything. He's you're not scared." Um, and and that applies in business too. I mean, to some extent, I had no fear in business. But mainly because a lot of times a lot of the decisions I made was because I was reckless, which is not really courage. It's the, and in terms of explaining these characteristics, you're trying to explain we call them virtues or whatever characteristics. But we need to understand where we stand in terms of the so-called gold mean. Let's take that word gold mean. Where do we stand? Are we reckless, fearful? Where where do we adjust ourselves, and and can I ask you how do we adjust ourselves, and how do we examine ourselves?
1: And they don't just work in isolation. In fact, there's been some recent work around this. So, for example, prudence, which um, I don't know how many young people are even <laughs> would even know what prudence means Mark, these days. I'm not what sure <laughs> right, of yeah. the word virtue, but you know, if we were looking at, you might be. And in fact, in schools, this is why character strengths is becoming so popular because rather than criticising a kid, you know, for being reckless. reckless the the educator would say wow you've actually got the strength of bravery but in this context we need to wind it down a little bit and we need to wind up prudence and prudence is about making wise decisions about when to use the strength of bravery and courage so what it's doing is giving us a language uh, and the the term well-being literacy is a term that's being used and uh, investigated at the University of Melbourne at the moment and we'll, we'll in time see it brought into schools where kids will develop a literacy much like they you know learn about maths and English and science they're going to learn about well-being literacy and they'll have a strengths literacy so they'll have a language and then they'll be able to as part of understanding themselves as you said they'll be able to reflect on which strengths become a more natural to me and a perhaps more trait-like, you know, from a little kid. I mean, my top strength is zest, energy, and vitality. And I'm, I'm not like that all, all day, every day, but, um, but you know, I've always been like that as a little kid. Like, as you said, when you were younger, you were always brave. So I've always been zesty and, and energetic. But other strengths are ones that may not be as natural and they're ones that we need to work on developing. And the ideal is that by the time we leave the planet, that we've actually developed the full 24. So it's not in this case when we're talking about character strengths, it's not about just play to your strengths. It's actually about let let's look at them absolutely play to your strengths but let's develop the full 24 in terms of being a good human being
0: can you give me like a like an example of say a couple of the the 24 so called the, the 24 that that have been sort of decided upon?
1: Yeah. So example, curiosity is another one of my top strengths. It's one that gets me into trouble. So as a business owner, I've had a business coach tell me that I've got SOS, shiny object syndrome, because I'm really curious about everything. I have love of learning is another one of my strengths. So I read voraciously about things. And so when you look at curiosity, love of learning, I've got zest, I've got a lot of energy and I've got hope. So I'm a high hoper, I'm high on hope and optimism. So that combination is pretty powerful when it comes to, I guess, my business. Um, But I also have to watch that I don't burn out because um, particularly with zest and energy, sometimes one of my friends tells me I'm over zesting, you know, and then I find that I've developed a headache, which I did earlier this week and I had to take myself off to bed. So um, it really does help you, I guess, raise your levels of self-awareness, but it also allows you to look at other people through the lens of strength. And this is where I think it's got huge potential in terms of building, you know, better relationships and having empathy and compassion for people because rather than looking at someone and going wow they're a nosy so and so it might be they actually have the strength of curiosity sure they might be overplaying it in this case but it's actually a strength so it allows you to look at people differently and in fact it's an exercise that we would give in a workplace where we'd have a team firstly do their own strengths and then we'd ask them we call it the stalker task it's not very positive psychology but we'd ask we'd ask them to pick a name out of a hat so say you had a team of 15 people and then we'd ask them to you know sort of anonymously observe that person over say a month's time and then at the end of the month uh, in a team session we'd we'd ask them to give feedback about what they've observed without actually knowing what uh, the other people's strengths are and you can actually really easily see if you know somebody well, it's very easy to pick what their top character strengths are if you've got that list of 24. But in this case, you would say, I was stalking Mark and I noticed that Mark was really helpful, like he's always keen to help people with their questions and their queries, and I would suggest that Mark has the top strength of kindness, for example. You know, So it's a really lovely yep. activity um, and it's really beautiful in, in terms of its use in schools because, again, it's helping kids to see the good in other children as well.
0: Right now during lockdown for a lot of businesses, this would be a great hackathon where they hack into these things.
1: Absolutely. It's really energetic. And one organisation I was working with, they've been at every team meeting, one person for the first five minutes of the team meeting will um, talk about their top strength and how they use it in their work and their life as a way to get to know each other a little bit more as well. Another great activity is actually creating a strengths map. So I mean, we normally do it, um, you you could do it, uh, I guess, through technology. But if you're in the same room, you'd map up the six virtues, the 24 strengths. And then we usually tell a team to bring along passport size photograph of everybody's Uh, everybody in the team, five of their faces, and then place their face on the strength. So so you get a strength map, and you can stand back and you can say, right, what are the top strengths of this team? And then what what are the strengths where we might be missing a little bit? And uh, for example, I worked with a a company that had been working extremely hard, this team, it was a property uh, team, actually. And um, they're the top strength of 12 people on that team, everybody on that team had persistence in their top five. And when we looked at zest energy and vitality, it was in the bottom five of everybody's um, assessment. Now, it was a big wake up call because firstly, they recognised, well, that's a fantastic strength. And that's what has allowed us to complete the target before, you know, not just on time, but before time but it's come at a cost to our energy and our well-being. And so what are we going to do individually and collectively to, you know, redress uh, address the uh, the low levels of energy now? So it's such a fantastic team activity.
0: These are great exercises for a business. I mean, I love them. We're going to go to the break. I want to come back after the break and talk about those two perennial um, discussions, which everybody just throws these words around, like they're uh, like it's the early morning coffee. Um, and it's, Uh, resilience and mental toughness. I'm going to talk about that when we come back from the break. So let's go to the break and we'll come straight back.
1: In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer.
0: back with Susie green now Susie the the founder of the positivity Institute I, know, I love the name um, and uh, we've just established uh, a few things about Susie and uh, one of hers is uh her zest and probably she, I, I'd say you got a zest for life too you know that the word ze- where the word zest comes from the Greek word zesty which means hot so <laughs> I like that <laughs> <laughs> so you know this is not an episode of my big fat Greek wedding though but um and, but us uh, uh, like, I did say that before the break that we're gonna talk about this concept of resilience, mental toughness after, but resilience. But it's a word that gets thrown around all the time. Everyone keeps talking about it, uh, keeps running around. Most people don't. No one bothers to define it. Um, then all of a sudden you, you create an expectation that, oh, shit, I should be resilient and my business should be resilient. But what the hell are we talking about with resilience? What does that mean? And it doesn't mean no, I can't fail.
1: No, no, not at all. Um, And look, there's still a lot of debate even in academic circles right now about whether it's a process, whether it's an outcome, whether it's a trait, whether it's a state. Uh, So it's a big, hairy, well, we call it a multidimensional construct. Um, So, I mean, generally when we think about resilience, for most of us we think about something happens to us and it's how we, well, ideally respond. A lot of people react um, and then how they... uh, bounce back or even bounce forward, which is uh, some of the new areas around what's being referred to as post-traumatic growth now within psychological circles too.
0: I was talking to a friend of mine today um, who informed me that uh, I heard he wasn't well. He informed me that he had a stroke uh, like last week, and uh, but he was laughing and uh, and I thought, he's in a resilient bastard. That's the first thing that went through my mind. He's a really resilient guy. And he was mucking around and he... Fortunately, he wasn't paralyzed or anything like that. So, but nonetheless, that's that to me, that's resilient.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly what what you've said, and what most people understand is when you have a a life curveball, if you like. Um, I mean, some of them, as you know, you can see coming. So, I have two 94, 95 year old parents, and you know, I'm very well aware that they've got limited time on, on the planet so I can sort of see that curveball coming. I'm preparing myself for that but others and I possibly the most traumatic ones are the ones that come out of left field that you absolutely can't see coming which tend to you know, affect people more, but again, you see so many incredible stories, don't you, of people that have had something come out of left field, and they, you know, go on and do incredible things. So one of my um, colleagues who I've just recently become uh, got to know is Janine Shepard. I don't know if you've ever met Janine. She was an Olympic athlete and was uh, run over um, in training. She was a cross country skier, and she was. Uh, flattened her back in a spinal ward for six months and within six months of leaving that spinal ward was flying a plane and then um, I think doing acrobatics and now you know she's an incredible she's actually come to me because she's going to do a PhD now on positive psychology for spinal cord injury so there are amazing examples of people that Really are, I guess it, it is post traumatic growth, but uh, but it's it's tough, isn't it? I've had I haven't had anything really really traumatic, but I've had my fair share. I've had a divorce, I've had a business partnership breakdown, which was worse than the divorce, and so it really puts every bit of who you are and every skill that you've got to the test when you go through those circumstances.
0: So, what are the skills, Susie? Like, let's say I'm talking to a, a staff member, they've had some sort of trauma, um, you know, it could be physical, whatever it is. Um, and trauma doesn't mean necessarily something extraordinarily bad, but just a trauma. What would you say to those individuals who, in order to help them optimize the resilience that they have, if, if and maybe the, or they're too young and they don't know how to get past this issue?
1: What you're really talking about is compassion, which again is a really hot topic in organisational research at the moment. Um, in fact, a great resource is called Awakening Compassionate Work by Jane Dutton and Monica Warline, which I'd highly recommend for business owners, um, because there's a difference between empathy and compassion. Um, often people talk use that term compassion fatigue, which is actually incorrect. What the research is finding is that empathy, which is feeling how other people feel, That's what leads to the fatigue. It's really important. We need people to develop empathy, which is basically being able to, as best as you can, try and understand how somebody's, what they're going through and how they're feeling. Empathy is important, but what the research is showing is if you don't do something with that emotional energy that you're feeling, which now we're really finding out is what is compassion is. So compassion is actually action. So we need to feel as best as we can and empathise with someone, but what can we do? So I I guess in response to your question, it would be, is there anything that I can do right now?
0: Is that what you do? You say that to them or do you actually have to do something?
1: Well, I think you you do both. I think you're right. But I think um, in some cases, people won't accept that. Um, You know, they're very proud some people are very proud or they don't even know what they need and actually I have a close colleague that's going through something fairly traumatic at the moment and I offered help and then I thought afterwards, I probably should have just sent a mail over there. I didn't actually know their address, unfortunately. But, um, but I think in some cases, you actually, and particularly as a business owner, and this is what this book that I mentioned before, it's got some great guidelines around as a business owner, you need to role model compassion. So you need to be able to, as best as you can, understand what people might be going through and inquire how you might be able to help. But you also need to use your networks, your resources that you have at hand and actually just take action like if it means covering their job or arranging for a cleaner to come like you need to also you know do what you can with the resources you have as a leader
0: i know people who in my opinion anyway i mean i'm no psychologist but over empathize with situations like a lot of people are empathizing with um What's going on in Afghanistan at the moment? Or they over empathize with something that's going on outside of their world and they actually become quite down and depressed about it. I mean, they, they, they actually put themselves in that position as if they're actually there on the tarmac in Afghanistan trying to get out of Kabul. And I think the second thing you're saying is if you want to empathize with somebody, then show them how you empathize by an action. And it could be a simple thing by sending them over a, a basket of fruit. Yes. And so it's thoughtfulness with action.
1: Absolutely. And I had a wonderful MD at a, a forum I presented at earlier this year and I was talking about positive psych and I said, is anyone doing anything that sounds remotely like this? And um, this MD said, yeah, Susie, I've been doing this for a few years. Every morning I send out five emails or texts to somebody in the, and it was a bigger organisation, to somebody in the organisation to either express appreciation or just to check in to see how they're going. And he said, it's, I've had such positive feedback and it's really helped To to get to know people in the business as well. Whereas I had another uh, CEO in that forum who said, Oh, I tried that. And people looked at me and and said, Who are you? Like it was so out of character for me. And I said to him, Okay, when you first start doing it, people might think that's a bit odd. But over time, the feedback that you'll get from people will positively reinforce your behavior and you'll find your way of doing it. It's got to be done in a way that fits with your character and your style. But overwhelmingly as you would know people love when they feel valued and appreciated and thought you know the thoughtfulness around that as well
0: yeah so compassion is about an action empathy is um perhaps listening and how you feel as a result of listening but the the most important part the finisher the closer on this is action it's funny you know when i was a kid i went to catholic school my mom was irish so i went to irish catholic school and uh we had this thing called project compassion what it was was that went off to the pacific islands and uh and obviously the the Catholics are over there trying to convert them, but we had to put money as kids, whatever saving we could make, and it wasn't very much, but in this little envelope. And it was called Project Compassion, and, and the compassion was actually putting, not thinking, oh, wow, feel sorry for those poor, poor people in Fiji who are, you know, haven't got fresh water or whatever the case may be, proper health services, but I'm actually putting some money in the thing and I'm sending us something. So you're right.
1: Yeah, we, I've worked with a lot of Catholic schools and I learnt uh, – about St Ignatius also, who was uh, very much, I guess, a positive psychologist. So he used to do something called the examine, which at the end of the day was a reflection on the day to look for joy, which in his um, mind was a recognition of God's presence in his life. But he also uh, cultivated gratitude at the end of the day for for things that occurred or things that that he had a sense of appreciation for. And then he'd also set an intention um, he'd also look for things that perhaps he could have done better. And then he'd set an intention for who he wanted to be the next day as well. So very aligned to the science of positive psychology.
0: That's interesting. I, mean, I know it's a little off topic, but um, uh, I, when I was at school and still is today, uh, my favourite poet is a guy called Gerard uh, Manley Hopkins. And he was actually a Jesuit priest. And... Um, um, but a very famous poet nonetheless, not just because he's a, a, a Jesuit, but just generally speaking, he was a, a famous poet. And uh, he used to always talk about his struggle with uh, his faith, given that shit happens in your life and you start to wonder, well, you know, why is it, how could this be happening if, um, you know, if there's supposed to be God and God's supposed to be good and all that sort of stuff? And uh, he would always finish off with um, these positive thoughts about how he's going to approach the next day.
1: Yes, and that reflection which I think is bringing it back to, you know, our everyday lives now, what I'm finding and you're probably finding is there's no space for self-reflection. You know, and when it comes from a well-being perspective, a lot of organizations or businesses are throwing well-being content out there, giving you know lots of access to um, Services, But people are just so busy and fatigued, rather than providing people with a space, whether that's, you know, through a one on one individual coaching, or even just a team session to actually reflect on, you know, how am I going? Who am I? Who do I want to be? And what tools and resources do I have? Because most of us, and particularly as small businesses and small business owners, and I've absolutely, you know, can relate to that it's a hectic day, like I'm up at five, I'm working all day. So unless you actually have a dedicated space in your diary, um, which is a really precious space that you've allocated yourself 30 minutes, if you can take yourself out into nature even better, Um, but some space where you can really think about your goals, you might reflect on some feedback that you've been given, it could be personal feedback, it could be a 360 degree feedback. And really, again, think about who you are, and who you want to be going forward into the future.
0: It's interesting. People think more about that that today than I've ever seen before. People are much more reflective um, about whether I'm a valuable person. Is it valuable to me being a valuable person? Um, and, and where am I going? Am I, what am I achieving out of all this? How important is that communication between the business and the staff member?
1: I guess to a large part it comes down to the role of the leader and Gallup organisation have done significant research, a great book called It's the Manager, and there's additional research to show that the impact of the leader on the team member or the team itself. So the investment, I think what businesses have realised in conjunction with what the science shows us is that if you're flourishing, if you're a functioning, high functioning human being, you're going to be a better leader, and then you're going to have a better team, and then you're going to have a better business. So in like the large corporates for many, many years, there's been a recognition of that, which is why leadership development programs are so placed, you know, there's a high value placed on them. But in small business, my experience and I know myself, you know, you're managing budgets and cash flow, that I don't see as much investment in leadership development um, as other components, I would say, of running a small business. As a small business owner, I can see how easy it would be to say, oh, that's not an important factor. I need to focus on marketing, say, for example. But I think what I'd love to see is more small businesses realising that an investment in their own personal hence professional, and then their team and their business growth and development as basically as human beings to start with, Mark, you know, being a better human being is going to ultimately affect the productivity and the effectiveness of the business.
0: In 2005, I was on the Australian Story um, and the the lady interviewing me said, um, well, what do you define success as in business? I'm she talked about, and uh, I was actually, I had to think about it for a second or two, but you know, I had the luxury of having done something you know, quite successful in terms of dollars and cents and impact. But I thought about it and because um, they interviewed me at my house, so I was able to have a break and think about it. And I walked away and I came back. The thing that I said was being involved with people who became the best they could be. And that today is a little bit of reason why I do the mentor, to be honest with you. That is the most important thing for me. I mean, I, I have to say I was pretty tough on people. I was sort of like a What I imagine a parent would be like. My only objective was to get the best out of them for themselves. But uh, equally, I often get interpreted as being too tough on people um, and demanding too much. I mean, I only demand what I think someone can deliver. Do you think it's something I should sit down and say why I do these things?
1: Possibly. I think. I think um, particularly if you're starting off with a new team member or a new team, it can be really helpful to talk about your approach, the way that you like to work so that you are starting up front, setting up, we call it setting up the frame of how you work. And, it, you know, it may, may be also then suggesting or giving them permission to say, you know, if you feel that I'm pushing you too hard, I really need you to be able to push back as well. You know, so um because as you know, sometimes younger they're trying to please and they're trying to succeed. And I mean, I have seen unfortunately young people burn out too because they're trying to, you know, compete and be successful. Um, and they won't say no. They just keep taking on too much to the detriment of their well-being. So I think as a great leader, to be able to say, you need to be able to say stop, Susie. So, I know my team, I say to my team, because you know, probably a bit like you, I'm I see all these opportunities and I say, right, we're doing this. And so just recently I've said to the team, just push back on me if it's going to put too much stress on the resources on you and what, what else is happening in our business right now.
0: What are the signs of burnout?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a really hot topic at the moment. There's a couple of good books that actually Professor Gordon Parker from Black Dog Institute, who I'm associated with, has just published a book too. Um, and I think we're hearing a lot about it, particularly since COVID and the working from home because we've lost the boundaries. We've lost what's referred to as the third space that we all had with, the, you know, commuting home where we could sort of, you know, release a bit of stress and then turn up at home who we wanted to be so the burnout i think is coming um there's three components from the research the first one is emotional exhaustion. Um, so originally, the re- in the research they looked at, um, I guess you know, occupations or professions that were dealing uh, with you know emergency response where they are under enormous stress, the police, ambulance, for example. So there was a lot of research done there, um, and also fields where you're not really able to express your emotions so you might be feeling really frustrated you know with a customer um and they call it emotional labor and that can take a toll on your well-being if you're feeling really angry but you can't express it and you can't you know so um so emotional exhaustion is when we're just overwhelmed by emotions and it actually can lead to fatigue if you're not processing those emotions as we sort of spoke about earlier today too then there's this sense of um de-realisation where you sort of feel disconnected from uh, your work. So it's like you become cynical and disengaged, um, I guess, because you've realised that there's no way I can ever empty my email inbox, you know, or my in-tray now, and it's just a never-ending story. And then um, the third one is, uh, I think, a a lack of sense of competence or achievement. So you just don't feel like you're getting anywhere as well so it's a it's a a syndrome it's not a clinical disorder at this point in time but a lot of people are talking about it and looking at what are the reasons um, that may be leading to that and I would say a lot of it is being driven by the the changes that COVID has brought upon us with um, homeschooling and working from home and as I said that loss of that that third space that we all used to have.
0: I guess we're running out of time, but are there any, I mean, you've recommended a whole lot of books, which have been fantastic. And this will all get highlighted because they're all important reads. I'm going to access some of those books myself, but are there any other things that we should be looking for?
1: I think, Mark, there's a really important point to make here, and this is um, becoming increasingly a concern for, for businesses, is that the responsibility of psychological health and safety Um, there is a, a duty of care by a business to their employees. There's a code of practice that just came out from Safe Work New South Wales in May this year. So I direct everyone. It's directed at small businesses as well as larger corporations because a large part of, I guess, employee wellbeing or occupational health and safety is to do with psychosocial risk factors such as work overload such as role clarity so am i giving my people too much work that they can't handle am i really clear about what their job description is and what their you know what the expectations are so there's a whole range of these factors that the business really has a responsibility and the reason this is going to become increasingly important is because um you know, stress related claims, psychological claims are overtaking physical claims when it comes to workers' compensation claims. So the business has a duty of care to ensure that they're providing a, a safe workplace. And that has a significant impact on people's wellbeing. If you're not overburdening them, if you're clear about your expectations, um, you know, there's a whole whole range of these activities. But on, I guess, the side that we come from, which is the space I play in, is I still absolutely believe that we can and should be equipping people with a wellbeing literacy and wellbeing skills. So much like we know what we should be doing for our physical health, that there's opportunities for people to learn about what they can do. So activities like mindfulness, and there are many different forms. I know some people roll their eyes when they hear that, but you can't, argue with the research it's overwhelmingly positive in terms of our our reduction of our stress and increases in our well-being so giving people access to an app a lot of companies did that last year a subscription to an app expressing gratitude so that could be we did a a program with the reserve bank with one of the departments they just implemented uh, every month at their town hall meeting what's working well so normally they would come into their meeting and they get straight into the problems. So after hearing from us about the research, they decided they were going to start every town hall with um, an expression of appreciation to someone and something that's working well, which also gave them an opportunity to express appreciation for how that managed to happen and who was responsible for that. And they said that had a huge impact on people's, um, I guess, emotional states. And we also know from the research that when people feel positive emotions, And certainly that's an activity that would do that. It broadens our thinking. It allows us to be more creative, more innovative. So if you've got really complex problems that you're trying to solve as a business, the best thing you can do is do a mood booster. It could be some funny video. It could be someone telling a dad joke, for example, but some way to bring some positive energy into the room because the research tells us we make better decisions. As I said, we are Find you know more solutions um, as well. So there's lots of activities that you can do.
0: It's funny, it's you know, like uh, when you're speaking that. I remember in 2002 and three, um, prior to Kerry and I, Kerry Packer and I, selling the Wizard business, um, and I, I put it in my playbook as uh, I think it's chapter nine or something. But um, Kerry used to always ask me and like he's certainly no psychologist, but maybe he was in a funny sort of way. He used to always ask me, and this is 20 years ago, like what was the energy of the business? He used to always say, he, he said, how's everybody feeling? Uh, and it was more a risk management thing from his point of view. He's always trying to find out uh, how everybody was, like whether there was any risk involved in the business. Are we going to lose someone because someone's not is feeling burnt out or fatigued? I remember it, um, they, I won't say his name, but there was a guy who was a very – senior person in the private packer business, in the, the, the CPH business, who was an extraordinary individual, um, extraordinarily bright, and I, I just don't identify what he did, but he ended up um, committing suicide and uh, and I, I remember it impacted Kerry quite heavily. Not to say that he was a really super empathetic style guy. He didn't have that reputation. But he was well aware, always very, very conscious of the energy of the business, the mood of the business. And, and that's by definition the people within the business. But he knew what made a place run and uh, he knew what worked. And what I think what Susie's saying is um, like try to get the energy up in the room and uh, and be positive right at the start and call people out as doing something good. You know, like shout-outs. We all want to be acknowledged. Everybody wants to be recognised. Uh, that's just a normal human thing you know we all all of us including me I will want to get recognition of what we do
1: absolutely and there's great research on what they call the positive leadership and the positive energy which is in my uh, masterclass uh, with your program Mark as well and uh, to show that the positive energy of the leader impacts not just on the team members in terms of their engagement and their satisfaction but right through to what they call enrichment in the family home so it goes right back and they use social network analysis which is a really you know complex way of mapping out um, the transmission of uh, I guess of these relationships but when we talk about positive energy they factored out in these studies which means they they took out extroversion because we're not talking about bubbly extroversion because you can be a leader that might be quite you know, quite reserved and quite introverted. But what they found made for a positive leader and a positive energizer is someone that is fully present. So they're not distracted on their phone. I mean, I still hear stories from... People that say my boss doesn't even look up from his laptop when I come in to talk to him or whatever. So it's about being fully present, giving your mindful attention to the person that's in front of you right now, validating their perspective, even if you don't agree with it in the first instance, definitely before offering your perspective on it. Um, And then ideally encouraging that person so that they walk away feeling energised from that interaction rather than depleted. And you've probably heard that term energy vampire, which most people... And know what that feels like to walk away and you think, oh, I'm never going to tell that person that anymore because I just, you know, feel so de- de-energized. Well, the, the research shows you can actually be a positive energizer. So people walk away feeling energized from your the interactions with you.
0: I get an amazing amount of generosity feeling from you, Susie. I mean, you're a person who naturally loves to share what she knows, but these are extraordinarily important things that need to be Thought about and then probably more importantly implemented, but to implement it, you need to find out how can I do that. So I'm going to do a plug in I don't normally do this, but I implore you, especially at the moment, and I don't, I rarely do this, but I implore you, especially at the moment, to go and listen to the mentor masterclass with Susie Green. I think you will never get a better investment than listening to what Susie's has to say in our masterclass where it's much more specific about how you employ this style and these skills into your business, make your business more sustainable and a happier place to be. And by the way, we live in our businesses today, literally, and our businesses live with us, literally from home. And therefore, we have to attend to them properly. So I say to you, go to the mentor masterclass and listen to Susie Green because she that's a killer for me. That's a killer.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much, Mark, and your program I've used myself and we have our, we call them the C-suite meetings every second month and we go through the the 10 chapters every uh, every two months. It's been extremely helpful for my business as well.
0: Thanks very much, Susie, and it's been such a great pleasure to talk to you. By the way, I mean, in, talk, in terms of talking about energy, I mean, you give energy to me just by me sitting across from, I'm not. you're not even in the same room, but like the, <laughs> the way you look and the way you project yourself, it's fantastic. A lot of things a lot of people can get out of just even looking and listening to Susie Green. Thanks oh, very much.
1: Thank you so much, Mark. Much appreciated. Thanks for listening to The Mentor. Audio and production is by Jess Morley and production assistant's Jonathan Leondis.